0: A Spanair MD82 is flying from Madrid to Las Palmas Airport, but they barely leave the runway. What caused this flight to end so soon after takeoff? Welcome back to the Hard Landings podcast, everybody. I'm Nick.
1: I'm
2: Miranda, and I'm Christy. we, hey. have, a, we have a patron. We do.
0: I think. Oh, I was like, we
2: have a patron. I'm pretty sure we have plenty. <laughs> no, we have a patron to thank. A new patron.
0: No, we're just down to one. Dude, I filled this water bottle with Thanks ice.
2: Thanks to Xander. Thanks, Xander. Xander.
1: I... And they're, he, they are a $20 patron. Oh, Excellent. hey.
0: Hey, hey, hey. So we'll
1: see you in a few weeks. Yeah. Actually, you'll probably see you the week
2: that you this comes out. Yeah. 26th. So. So. Damn it. <laughs> Christy's in a weird mood right now. I'm having withdrawal symptoms. Um, fun fact, there is a national ADHD med shortage, and I'm feeling it really bad. So I'm in a funk mm-hmm. of massive proportions. Um, my notes are
0: sparse compared to what I think they should be. That's okay. I pick up the slack here this time. I've got a lot of notes. I love you.
1: So that I... being said,
0: yeah,
2: you should check out the Patreon and the merch. And you should get ducks and sign up for the newsletter. Unfortunately, you spending money on us will not get me ADHD meds, but you can try. <laughs> <laughs> Unless no. you have spares.
0: <laughs> Don't do that. Don't That's do that. Illegal. That's
2: illegal. <laughs> <laughs> it is a controlled substance, which is part of the shortage problem.
0: Yeah, it is.
2: So.
1: Anyway. What are we covering today, Nick?
0: Today. Uh-oh. <laughs> we are covering Span Air Flight 5022.
2: And here comes the uh-oh. <laughs> I don't know. (laughs) Thanks, too. Drumroll, please. Oh, God. (laughs) At the almost scientist, I'm assuming on Twitter, which isn't Twitter.
0: I or Instagram Or
2: It might be Instagram. It was
0: one of those. Okay, one of the social media. This was a hot minute ago.
1: Uh, Yeah, this was probably at least eight months ago. I'm
0: actually amazed it took us this long to get around to this accident.
1: Me, too. Me, too. I have seen the air disasters, but it's yes. been so long, I don't remember anything.
0: <laughs> Good air disasters episode, actually, but it is a pretty well-known accident. This is, I, like, random strangers
2: There's also- I've heard
0: speak about this accident.
2: There's also some very strong parallels to a previous episode. Mm-hmm. Very strong parallels.
0: Yes. And in the industry, this accident is, of course, very famous because of the consequences. Stuff. So. Yeah. Yes.
1: The stuffs that happen to the
2: stuffs.
0: So, we'll get into it. I have a lot of notes, but I still leave out some important things.
2: Not as many as you could have. No. Mostly because I can't brain today.
0: That's okay. I brained today. I could have
2: made my notes super dramatic, but I said no. <laughs>
0: Be it that I was not the exhausted one this weekend, I brained today.
2: I, I uh, can, brained today. Can you advise? How?
0: <laughs> Sleep.
2: <laughs> I would, I would like some of that. Can you prescribe
0: me some sleep? <laughs> we will after the post episode. Okay. Okay. All right. This accident occurred on August twentieth of two thousand eight. So it's a relatively modern. I mean, we were accident. alive for yes, this one. We were alive.
2: <laughs> Is that our bar now for this one? Is that Isn't the- that horrible?
0: That doesn't make you young anymore. It
2: no, it. don't. Nick! <laughs> it. Shut up. It happened this millennia. Millennium. It it did. We were in middle school? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, what, what month did you say it was? August. You and I had just started seventh grade. Excellent. The month of my birth? Not really. August? I mean, not the of the. Never mind. Not the year, just the month of my birth.
0: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm. And it's not close to the day either, but you know. No.
0: But it is close. We're recording this very close oh. to the anniversary of this act. This
2: is basically an anniversary episode. It's
0: it's close. It's ish. close enough. Close-ish. This was a McDonnell Douglas MD82 with the tail number Echo Charlie Dash Hotel Foxtrot Papa. This the, is the
2: point at which you go through our entire history of episodes and narrow it down to MD82s.
0: There are a lot of MD80s, 82s, and 90s in our history, and that is because. Uh
2: they're not great. <laughs> <laughs> they had
0: quite the history of It's Exodus. like
1: the DC dead all over it. Yeah,
0: well that wouldn't be because this is a derivative of the DC nine.
1: <laughs> DC
0: nine and it's all it's history history too.
1: This is after way after, I believe. Was it McDonald or Douglas that ate each other? Or did Good they just question. partner each other did they just They just pretty much partnered
0: up? It's a partnership basically. A so, merger. Yes.
1: Because McDonald used to be its own. And Douglas yes. was its own. Yes. Ergo, DC stuff.
0: Yes. And then we came to the MD.
1: And MD, which is McDonnell Douglas. Right. This and then was... they, they married with Boeing, and now it's just Boeing. Right. It's scary.
0: And these things always seem to happen right before they released a new aircraft, because originally this was supposed to be the DC 980. That was the whole reason it is the 80. It was supposed to be the DC 980. And then McDonald and Douglas did the thing, and then now it's just the md Mowage? 80, yeah, they did the Mowage. And then this happened again when we got to the 717 because it was supposed to be the MD-95, but then Boeing and McDonnell Douglas did the thing. Mowage? The Mowage. <laughs> <laughs> and instead they changed the name to the 717. So there you go, quick history. So the MD-80 is a derivative of the DC-9, it's a very stretched version of the DC-9. It was the longest fuselage they put on any of the... DC-9 derivative aircraft. The MD-90 is the same length of fuselage with a different engine. The MD-82 and 83 were very, very close in relation to the original just MD-80. They, you would never be able to tell the difference physically.
2: What are we talking lengthwise? Like, pencil-y?
0: They're pretty pencil-y.
2: Are they as pencil as the 757? As, as Not the, As the quite. certified pencil?
0: Not quite, but compared to the original DC-9, yes. Absolutely. Very pencil-y.
2: And it is relevant. They have tail-mounted engines. It
0: is. This is a whale tail airplane, so the elevators are at the top of the the tail. It's got the T tail, and the engines are tail mounted. So there's one on either side at the rear.
1: That was like a thing. Yes. For a while.
0: Uh huh. The DC nine. It ain't pretty. And then you had like all the Fokkers and well, then you had
1: DC tens. Also had a tail mounted engine. Did they? Just one. Yes.
0: Well. Yes. But these aren't. These ones aren't specifically in the tail. They're beside the tail on either side of the fuselage at the rear.
2: You remember ERJs how- and CRJs, do they? Yeah, they yeah. those, uh, yes. Yeah, CRJs. And the
0: E-145s, 35s, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, they have them as well. <laughs> yes, yes, you are correct. They still fly these.
2: Once upon a time, there was an episode where Brendan was telling the story, and then Miranda guessed the entire thing about how ice flew into some tail-mounted engines, and I got really mad because then I had nothing to do for the rest of the episode. And that was an MD-80. You're welcome. <laughs> I science went there was, out of that
0: the one. The very first Miranda-sode was an MD-80. Actually, yeah, it was an md eighty two. I think, specifically.
2: I don't. Wow. I don't remember. I don't remember either. Please hold. It's been I'm, a while. I'm a fact check you real quick.
0: I'm pretty sure that's what Alaska had, but it could it might have just been an MD-80. It was either that, an MD-82, or an MD-83. They were all very, very similar.
2: That was an MD-83. Three.
0: Okay. Again, they're all super close. Very little difference between these aircraft. Usually it had to do with avionics, fuel tanks, things like that. Like, physically. They look the same. Basically, there's no difference.
2: And excuse you. The foreign object damage due to ice, which was an episode something, was Mm an MD-81.
0: Ah, yes. Also very similar. (laughs) The different ones were the MD-85 and 87. They were short.
2: I don't even remember hearing about
0: those. They are short. There were very few of them, and American operated them primarily. Are they as
2: short as Miranda?
0: No. (laughs) The 717 was the shortest variant of these. I love you. Don't hate me. And actually, the <laughs> shortest variant of all is the original DC-910, which was basically a regional jet.
2: I am a PC-12. Thank you very much. <laughs> Speaking of PC-12s, I'm sorry. This is a, a now relevant tangent. So I'm sitting in, at my desk, Nick's sitting on the couch, and I'm on the phone with Jenna, my coworker. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, that plane sounded weird. A plane flew overhead. I'm like, that didn't sound good. Nick's like, no, it sounded fine to me. It didn't I'm sound like sound that bad to me. It sounded not good. So I look it up on flight radar, mm-hmm. and it was intended to go to Colorado Springs and was diverting to Centennial mm-hmm. due to an engine issue. Oh.
0: And it was a pc off. I mean, it really didn't sound that bad to me. I
2: thought it did. And this is why okay. I have the engineering degree. Yes. Z-
0: Although I know what airplanes sound like. I wasn't paying that close of attention, though. You were the one paying closer attention, so I'll give you that. Sorry. Anyways,
2: please
1: continue.
0: Back to the Spanair. <laughs> Spanair is a Spanish airline. For those of you that don't know, what? was was a Spanish airline. What? They were part of the Star Alliance.
2: This was actually a Star Alliance library to plane. Which is
0: why I brought it up. This one had a specific special library with the Star Alliance logo and the Star Alliance plastered across the side because they were a Star Alliance airline.
2: Which was accurately depicted in the Air Disasters episode, in case you were wondering. Twas, twas indeed. I mean, we've seen
1: them before, because there's a couple that are Star Alliance partners that have Star Alliance. Quite frankly, literally have Star Alliance and then a lot of the logos underneath it.
0: Quite frankly, and this comes from somebody who works with the Star Alliance very closely. I think they need updated because they've had the same Star Alliance paint scheme on the Star Alliance aircraft for like 30 years, (laughs) which is almost the entire history of the Star Alliance. The only time it was the first few years they operated these weird aircraft where they had all of the airlines in the star alliance painted down the side like their own paint schemes in little sections down the side of the aircraft and then they just switched to each one had their own star alliance thing and it's the same thing that they still all fly except air new zealand who flies it in black they fly they fly it's it, cool they fly it in reverse colors now i gotta look this up it's really cool
2: okay
1: please continue continuing i'm so it's gonna be a long episode as it is
0: yep <laughs> this is a flight from barcelona to madrid to gran canaria and the Canary Islands. So the accident leg is the Madrid to Gran Canary, Gran Canaria, and the Canary Islands.
1: Is Tenerife part of the Canaries? Yes. Yes. Okay, I thought so.
0: Yes, it is. Very much so.
1: Just wanted to ask.
0: And Tenerife happened because Gran Canaria was closed because of the threat. Oh. It was Las
2: Palmas. No, yeah, it was, it was Las, Las Palmas. Palmas.
0: You are right. It was Las Palmas. You were right.
2: I was like, I, don't I only that. okay. So Caitlin, our beloved social media coordinator, just got her wisdom teeth out, and so she was hanging out. And she's like, "Hey, I want to watch Air Disasters." Like, I have roped you in. You <laughs> want starting with season ten? Guess what?
0: You started with the big one.
2: Uh, no, we started with the the the, okay. the, 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 the stream. Right. Yeah, no Learjet, Learjet. Yeah, the Learjet. that had a golfer on board. Yes. There, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And then it was the nine eleven Pentagon crash, and then it was Tenerife.
0: Got it. Okay. I couldn't find names for the crew, but that actually doesn't mean anything. I think they were in the episode. I didn't grab them. It doesn't actually, that doesn't matter much. But Captain was male, 39 years old, had 8,476 hours total, of which 5,776 were on the MDs. Wow. A chunk. That was a lot. The first officer was male. He's 31 years old, so only eight years younger had 1,276 hours total, of which (laughs) 1,054 were on the MDs. Almost all of his hours were on the MD.
1: How old was he again? 31. Okay.
0: He didn't have a lot of hours total, but almost all of them were on the MD. All but 200, basically. Just a little over 200 hours. The accident aircraft and crew flew from Barcelona to Madrid uneventfully that morning in a regularly scheduled flight. The flight arrived at Madrid at 10.30 a.m. local time. The flight crew left the aircraft during the stopover at Madrid because they had some time. The accident flight was scheduled to leave Madrid at 1 p.m. Okay. So they arrived a whole three hours, no, four hours almost. No, three hours prior to the departure. So solid time on the ground. They left. They went and did some things, came back, did some checks on the aircraft. For the flight to Gran Canaria, 166 passengers joined the six crew that boarded the flight. Which is quite the chunk. That was actually a full airplane.
2: Unfortunately.
0: Yep. 106 p.m. and 18 seconds. The flight crew contacted the clearance departure, east control, requesting permission to start engines. This airport has far too many control frequencies. I'm just going to say that right out and out loud and I'm vocal about it. Because, now to be fair, this airport is a very, very, very strange configuration. For a very major international airport. How so? It's hard to explain unless you see it on the map. But it has four runways, all four of which are unusable on one end. Because you would have to fly over the terminals and concourses one way or another in order to use those approaches. Or taxiways that are too close, or you name it. It's not to say that they necessarily absolutely can't use those ends, but they basically are unusable. And because of that, it's, it's such a strange setup. There's, like, two that go ex- straight north to south, and then two at an angle further south, and there's a big concourse right in the middle between all four. But they have so many frequencies for so many different things. They used a clearance departure controller, and not just any, but the east control...
2: Oh, good God.
0: ...to request permission to start their engines. The permission was given to the flight, and the flight was instructed to contact the south-north ground control... I'm sorry. Yep. What? The South-North Ground Control. Yep, that is what they were told.
2: Uh Uh-huh. Mm-hmm.
0: The crew made initial contact with the ground control and requested taxi clearance at 1.10pm and 18 seconds. The aircraft taxied from gate T-21 at the T-2 terminal, entering taxiway Mike m 1.18 1.18 p.m. and 47 seconds, the crew was instructed to contact the Central South Ground Control. Oh, good God. As they were taxiing, and they did so to continue their taxi toward Taxi Point Romeo 1, which is a hold point for the runway. Yeah. They cha- they transfer a lot in their taxis.
1: So, Is this them? I'm sorry. They landed?
0: No. They're leaving.
1: They're leaving from Gran Mad- Canary?
0: From Madrid. Madrid. Heading okay. to Gran Canaria. Yeah. Okay. So why the hell do they have so many goddamn frequencies? Again, it's a very strange airport. I'll have to show you a map, but it is set up very strange.
1: That it I would understand for ATC, but for ground frequencies?
0: There's a lot of different taxiways and terminals and concourses in Madrid, and it's very, very, very strange.
2: Please hold, I'm just gonna pull it up to satiate our curiosity.
0: So you have one big concourse here. Straight across, you've got one over here, okay, satellite, doesn't really matter much, fine, dandy. You've got a big one down here, and then you've got these two runways that cross across, and one of them points, like, directly at this concourse, so you can't really use it, and then you've got these two north to south, which this one crosses right over this whole thing, and it's usable, but kind of ugly. This one is so strangely close to this, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Why did they do that? Space. It's the space they had. It's this very strange setup. And so I think they were taxiing from... I think this is T2. Yeah. They were taxiing from down here to take off on this runway up here. This is 3-6 left. Good lord. It's a strange, strange, strange setup they have at this airport. And that's why they transfer frequencies a lot, is because the different runways are controlled by different frequencies, so the different areas around those are controlled by different frequencies. That's ugly. It's not dissimilar to a lot of other big airports in reality, but usually they can still put you on one single path as one controller. Instead, they're having to transfer a lot. 1.24 p.m. and 45 seconds, the flight crew contacted the 36 left departure control, reporting that they were approaching the Romeo 1 taxi point, so that was the holding point for the takeoff runway. 3.24 p.m. and 57 seconds, so 10 seconds later, the flight was cleared for takeoff on runway 36 left. p.m. and 3 seconds, the flight crew acknowledged the clearance and entered the runway to begin their takeoff roll. 1.26 p.m. and 27 seconds, the flight crew contacted the air traffic controller stating, quote, Madrid, span air 5022, look, we have a slight problem. We have to exit the runway again. End quote. Yes? Uh Uh-huh. The air traffic controller then instructed them to exit the runway and asked if they intended to return to parking or to the gate. The flight crew stated that they would contact the air traffic controller again once they were off the runway and once they had received word from their company technical department. Okay. The crew had noticed an issue with their RAM air temperature probe reading. The temperature had climbed well beyond limit and was not reading the outside temperature correctly. This literally just uses airflow to didn't give them they, an, a temperature reading didn't from outside. did they
1: just land in Madrid?
0: Three hours ago, yes. Things happen things happen. Mhm. Cuz I have a feeling. Now, it is hot. It is very hot in Madrid. So, it is currently
2: 85 degrees Fahrenheit. Sitting on the tarmac, it is much hotter than that. Yeah, because... because black Yeah. Ow.
0: Yeah. It it gets very very hot in Madrid. So, better part of almost 100 degrees basically sitting still.
2: At one point they said in the cockpit while they were waiting it was probably about 120 degrees in the cockpit.
0: And the reason for that is because the Ram Air Temperature Sensor stopped working. It believed it was 104 degrees Celsius, this probe.
1: That's like boiling hot.
0: Yes.
2: So, no, that's wrong. So, obviously,
0: that's wrong. (laughs) And so, it has basically stopped the cabin temperature from operating correctly.
2: That, and it feeds temperature information to the engines.
0: Which is important because it tells them how to operate. Because it, it, it obviously it can basically do the math. The computer can do the math and figure out how the engine how quickly the engine is supposed to run, basically, at what throttle setting, because it's figuring out the air density based on your altitude and the temperature. Which is a pretty simple math problem, actually. This is something that you learn to calculate when you learn how to fly.
1: Okay, so they So go- the
0: airplane is doing it itself normally, and that's actually what feeds the autothrottle. We'll talk about that in a minute.
1: Oh, is it autothrottle problems?
0: We'll talk about it. Talk about it in a minute.
1: That's really similar to an episode we just covered. Mm-hmm. Just saying.
2: This is called false foreshadowing. <laughs> false... Okay, so it's yes. not an auto-throttle. Well,
0: We'll talk about it. We'll talk about it. The captain contacted the company Maintenance Control Center, which is in Los Palmos, by the way, with his cell phone to request guidance... And information about the issue.
2: Hey, guess what? There's a whole analysis section about that I don't talk about. How you shouldn't use your cell phone. Yeah. Also, why did they call maintenance in Las Palmas when Madrid is a hub?
0: Right? Because that is where their maintenance control center is. That is the center of all things.
2: Investigators straight out said, like, why, why? You could have talked to the maintenance team right there. At
1: Madrid, yeah. Yep.
2: Had them come to the plane.
0: Which they
1: did.
2: Well, the plane came to them.
0: Yeah, basically. We'll talk about it in just a second. So he called him on the cell phone and gave him information about what was going on with the aircraft.
2: Is that standard practice now to use a cell phone?
0: Not unless they're parked and out of... And the engines are off. No. Okay. I wouldn't. That's not That's not normal. They usually have, like, a radio frequency, too. You can just call. There's also, like, onboard systems. You can use a cars and whatnot to contact mm-hmm. them. Like, there's always a way to get a hold of them using an aircraft system. Not necessarily the most efficient, but...
2: This was also back when we thought cell phones would break things in the plane. Right. Which now is not the case.
0: No. Their maintenance control center instructed the captain to reset the Zed or Zulu 29 breaker in the cockpit several times. And the captain stated that he had already done so. The maintenance control center then instructed the captain to obtain maintenance services at the airport in Madrid. Like, just get with our maintenance in Madrid.
2: Why you didn't do that beforehand?
0: Right. The maintenance control center then contacted the maintenance shift manager at Madrid and informed him that the aircraft would be returning to the gate due to overheating RAT, or RAM air temperature. This is not the same RAT we've talked about before. RAM air turbine. Right. This is the RAM air temperature. Yeah, because
1: they're having temperature
0: issues. Right. At the same time that the maintenance control center was calling the maintenance shift manager Madrid, the flight crew contacted the company radio ops the ground ops radio in Madrid, to inform them that they would be returning to the gate with a maintenance issue and requested maintenance services be present upon their arrival. The local operations confirmed and contacted the airline's main operations who authorized a change of aircraft if they needed as they had another one in Madrid available and ready.
1: Let me guess, they should have done the the switch, huh? Yeah. yeah.
0: Not to foreshadow too much.
1: Sometimes the easiest way, the path of least resistance is the way you should go.
0: Right. It seems you harder have, in the moment. You
1: have to deplane everybody and get all the bags off. But you
0: have to reset the other aircraft and everything. Yeah, it takes a lot of time.
1: But also having a maintenance problem takes a lot of time, so.
0: It definitely can. The local ops agent informed the flight crew of the second available aircraft, but the crew advised that they wanted to wait until maintenance inspected the issue and whether or not the aircraft needed to be removed from service before they made that decision.
1: Well, it's currently not working right, so. Right. So.
0: 1.33 p.m. in 12 seconds, the flight crew contacted the air traffic controller, advising that they would have to return to the gate. The air traffic controller gave instructions for the aircraft, and the aircraft was taxied back to the parking area, this time parking at gate R11, which is which a, was a remote parking stand.
2: It's a maintenance hard stand.
0: Yeah, it's a maintenance hard stand over by the maintenance facility.
2: Which is a problem, because you know what maintenance hard stands don't have? Stairs. Air conditioning. Air conditioning.
0: Oh. Yep.
2: And a, you, you can't get off either. So everybody so, on
0: board is baking. Literally baking. In well,
2: not not in the druggy sense.
0: No. In the quite literal burning alive baking in an oven sense.
2: It's very warm. It's toasty.
0: Yep. They arrived at this hard stand around 1.42 p.m. Two maintenance technicians arrived at the aircraft. The flight crew and maintenance techs discussed the issue. The maintenance techs then made a log in the aircraft's technical logbook. The captain asked the techs if they had received a call from the maintenance control center, and they responded that they had not, since they did not have cell phones on them, only radios. They were quite literally, like, the maintenance shift manager got the call from maintenance control. He didn't pass information on about that, but he did also get the call from the local ops radio, who got the call from the captain asking for maintenance technicians to be present, and he just sent two texts to the airplane, not stating anything about what they were going to be there for. Just, they're coming in for a maintenance issue. So then they had to discuss it all on the spot. The text did a visual check of the probe and found nothing wrong. The text then ran an electrical test on the heat switch, which confirmed the malfunction. There was indeed an issue with the heating portion of the probe. After some time and several discussions with different parties, the maintenance text checked chapter 30.8 of the MEL, or minimum equipment, list, and saw that the aircraft could actually be dispatched with the probe heating in-op as long as there were no icing conditions forecasted for the route. So, they were allowed to send the airplane with the probe heat not working,
1: but that, as long as
0: there was no icing conditions in route, because they don't want the probe to, he, to end up icing. But iced the open.
1: air conditioning's not working.
0: The air conditioning isn't working, but once you get the airplane up to altitude, and you're also forcing a lot of air into the engines, it's going to condition it to a normal cabin temperature or at least relatively.
2: But do you remember the other system that it's tied to?
0: The auto throttle.
2: So the auto throttle is basically an op two. So
0: but they have to manually need, you don't no. need the auto No, you don't. They can manually throttle the airplane.
2: But it's inconvenient. It is
0: inconvenient. 1 pm in two seconds the tech radioed the shift supervisor for concurrence. So making sure that they agree on the Having them go. M E L. Yeah. We call it an M E L. This is where they Defer the maintenance action and send it down line. Say somebody else is going to have to fix this later. The shift supervisor also reviewed the MEL and then agreed. The tech then consulted with the captain and proposed that they dispatch with the Zulu 29 breaker pulled, which disconnects the electrical supply to the probe. The captain agreed and the breaker was pulled. An in-op sticker was placed on the Ram Air Temperature Probe display in the cockpit. The tech then checked the probe to ensure that no current was being drawn, and then the appropriate entries were made in the aircraft technical logbook to defer the work. All pretty normal, actually. A pre-flight maintenance inspection was completed, and the aircraft was released for service from maintenance. Conversations were had in the cockpit, including with a jump seat flight attendant, who was also in the cockpit, 2.02 p.m. and 36 seconds, the captain requested that an announcement be made. Then he exited the aircraft to oversee the refueling ops, making sure they have enough fuel on board since they sat for quite some time. 2.07 p.m. and 2 seconds, the first officer requested permission to start the engines again from the air traffic controller, which was made in the wrong frequency. Couldn't imagine why. (laughs) They then tuned to the correct frequency and tried again and received the clearance at 2.08 p.m. and 8 seconds. So there's so many freaking frequencies. They were calling the wrong ones and everything.
2: I don't blame them.
0: No, I me mean, neither. There's a lot of frequencies. When you have server. a lot of
1: frequencies, you can call. Yeah, so that's a problem.
0: Yes, 2:08 p.m. and 43 seconds, the crew began their pre-start and before-start checklists. 2:09 p.m. and one seconds, the engine start sequence was started. It's redundant, but that that's a thing. The crew discussed a manual takeoff since the auto throttle was not working. Normally, their company operating procedures was to use the auto throttle oh, as right. part of the takeoff and. That's not entirely abnormal, actually. A lot of airlines do that. But you should
2: be able to do it on your own. But
0: you can do it manually.
2: Just in case. Right. Even if you have to have the conversation five times about it. <clears throat> right.
0: Getting there. 2, 12 p.m. and eight seconds. The engines were now started, and the aircraft start checklist was performed. Or the after start checklist, sorry. The captain then asked the first officer to re- request permission to begin taxiing to 3-6-left from the ETC. While waiting for clearance, the crew calculated the required thrust required for takeoff. So when I say that, what that means is they're actually taking the outside temperature, the reported temperature from the ATIS, the automated terminal information system, and their altitude at the airport, calculating what the density altitude is, calculating with the aircraft's book, which tells them how to do the calculation specifically for the thrust, how much thrust they're going to need per the runway length that they're going to have, in order to take do a proper takeoff on that runway,
2: there right. is a very handy dandy chart for this on the very last page of the report. Mm-hmm. Like I, I, I kid you not, the report is
0: two hundred eighty four pages. First of all, ouch, and it's page two hundred eighty four. There you go, Randa. You can see what, what what that. And this handy dandy chart is in their book. Yeah. They, it's not like they're having to like do a bunch of math on a scratch piece of paper. Right. They're following yeah. the chart basically, given the information they know.
2: And the note given says to be used only as a cross-check for EPR error due to plugged PT2 probe. Right. So basically only use this if the probe is not usable.
0: Right. And guess what?
2: Probe ain't usable. <laughs>
0: so <laughs> so here we go. They once again discussed the need to do a manual thrust takeoff after this. And then at 2:14 p.m. and 23 seconds, the captain contacted the air traffic controller again to request the taxi clearance to the runway, also requesting an estimated delay before they could begin taxi, like there were so many transmissions going on on this frequency and they haven't been given clearance even though they already asked once to taxi. So the captain was getting a little bit frustrated, so he asked this time and he said, "Are we going to, you know, what kind of delay should we expect in being able to taxi since we're still sitting here?" The air traffic controller stated that there was no delay and gave them instructions to taxi to 36 left the holding point for 36 left specifically 2:14 p.m. and 33 seconds the park brake was released and they began taxiing 2:15 p.m. and 46 seconds the crew began the taxi checklist 2:18 p.m. and 14 seconds while taxiing the first officer once again noted that the auto throttle wouldn't work yes we know yes we're aware thank you 2:19 p.m. and 8 seconds the flight crew contacted the 36 left departure controller again to report nearing the Romeo 5 holding point this time The air traffic controller informed them that they were in line and they would Call back right away. So you're in line with all the rest of the traffic. We'll get back to you shortly. 2.21 p.m. and 5 seconds. The air traffic controller instructed Span Air 5022 next in line behind airline MD-80. Taxi into position and hold runway 36 left. So there's another Span Air right ahead of them taxiing into the runway. The flight crew acknowledged. The air traffic controller then cleared the aircraft ahead of them for takeoff immediately after this. 2.22 p.m. and 6 seconds. Two chimes occurred. In the cockpit, indicating to the flight crew that the cabin was ready for takeoff, so the cabin crew were now prepared. The first officer then performed the takeoff imminent checklist, which is a checklist they have, apparently. Takeoff is now imminent. I saw that. I think that's just funny. It could also just be the takeoff checklist. Yeah. Like every other airline on the planet.
2: Dude, I don't know.
0: I don't know. He then discussed the possibility of engaging the autopilot immediately after takeoff. This is a little different situation. Like, he wants to know how quickly can we put the airplane on autopilot. After takeoff, captain discussed with him. 2.23 p.m. and 9 seconds, the aircraft ahead took off, at which point the air traffic controller instructed, span air 5022, wind 210 at 05, cleared for takeoff, runway 36 left. So they were already, like, in position and hold. Now they're cleared for takeoff. 2.23 p.m. and 14 seconds, the flight crew acknowledged, stating, quote, cleared, 36 left, span air, uh, 5022. And they literally wrote it out this time, (laughs) U-H-H-H-H-H-H-H-H. Which I just thought was great. I was like, I never see that in a report. That's fantastic. 2.23 p.m. in 10 seconds, the engine throttles were advanced and the brakes were released nine seconds later. So they did like a throttle up, especially because they're not able to use the auto throttle. I kind of understand what they were doing here. They were throttling up because they had a very specific thrust setting that they were trying to reach for this takeoff. It was the thrust setting that they had calculated. Okay. So they were setting the thrust first before they released brakes to do the roll. 2.23 p.m. and 31 seconds, the flight crew once again commented that the auto throttle wasn't working and that they had to do a manual takeoff.
2: My dude.
0: Yes, thank you. You're already on the roll, and yet we're discussing this one more time.
2: I still,
1: so to be devil's advocate, I feel like Mm -hmm. it's a good thing to say it over and over and over again.
0: I understand that. I agree.
1: So that everyone's in the right mindset of the airplane's not going to take over for us. We do have to do a manual takeoff. But mindset may
0: or may not be the problem here. I wish
2: they talked about other things over and over again.
0: So we'll get there. Okay. Not to foreshadow too much.
2: But I like foreshadowing. I know. There's been no foreshadowing, by the way.
0: (laughs) Hardly. The normal callouts were made at 60, 100, V1, and then power check, which is not a normal one, and rotate. It is normal to them, but it wasn't. Normal for a lot. I actually understand why they do this. It's not necessarily a bad thing. You get to V1 and doing a power check after V1, making sure that the throttles are staying where they're at. Power is still good. And then doing the rotation.
2: I understand It's actually, it's
0: not such a bad thing, but that's kind of the whole point of V1 anyway. So it seems kind of pointless to do a second call out. Eh, whatever. So anyways. Rotate was called at 157 knots. 2.24 PM and 10 seconds. The aircraft lifted from the runway. Four seconds later, the stall warning and the stick shaker activated. The first officer immediately called out, Engine (laughs) failure! I
1: know what happened.
0: Yeah. The first officer immediately called out, Engine failure? Question mark. The captain called out a second later, asking how to turn off the warning. The aircraft was at just 25 feet, with a pitch angle of 15.5 degrees and a right bank of 4.4 degrees. The right bank angle then increased to 20 degrees quite rapidly. There was then a change in the throttle levers, followed immediately by an increase to full throttle, so it had actually been reduced for a moment, and then it went back to full throttle, more than what they had before, as a matter of fact. The bank angle warning then then occurred, Yep, and alternated with the stall warning, actually most of the time yelling over it. The aircraft reached a max altitude of 40 feet and a max pitch up, pitch nose up, of 18.3 degrees. 2.24 p.m. and 24 seconds, initial impact was made by the tail first at 154 knots, which detached from the aircraft, the whole tailplane, not the engines, but the whole tailplane, like the rear cone, the tail itself, the vertical stabilizer Mm -hmm. and horizontal stabilizer, all detached from the aircraft. This was followed immediately by the right wing and right engine, which also detached, Yeah, immediately after that, they impacted the right wing, the right engine, both of which also detached. The aircraft then struck nearly nose first into an embankment, which caused the aircraft to immediately stop and break up into many sections, including igniting a large fuel fire, which quickly engulfed much of the wreckage.
2: Do you describe what it's an embankment of? No. It's an embankment of a river. Yeah. So one of the passengers was interviewed in the air disasters episode, and she was still strapped to her seat. I was getting there. And alive yes. and in in the water.
0: Yes. 2.24 p.m. and 36 seconds, another aircraft reported to the air traffic controller that there had been a crash, <laughs> and the emergency services were immediately notified, sent to the scene. The fire also spread to the surrounding brush area, which required ground and air fire suppression by firefighting services. So they actually sent in helicopters, water tanker helicopters, to go in and drop water on this fire.
2: There's an image of the wreckage site. Mm-hmm. Where you can tell where the plane was at one point. Right,
0: but it very much burned. Yes. Quite charred. Several people had been thrown from the aircraft during the crash, attached to their seats still, ending up, yes, in the river. They had been thrown from, and this is quite specific, the forward section of the aircraft where the nose, the cockpit had pretty much plowed directly into the embankment, but actually just rear of the cockpit section, as is kind of normal. The aircraft, the fuselage split, and... Those seated in those first couple of rows, just after that split, were hurled out of that crack in the fuselage over the they were the nose section.
2: Yes, they were yeeted.
0: in into the dirt, or and, the river. Yep. Rescuers ended up finding 26 people alive in the wreckage. However, six perished on the way to local hospitals, and two more perished a short time after arriving at the hospital. The remaining 18 were all passengers with serious injuries, including one of those that was thrown from the aircraft.
2: That one. That was interviewed.
0: Yeah, that one that was interviewed. In all, 154 people perished in the accident, including all six crew. 18 people survived with serious injuries.
1: Do you want me to ruin it now?
0: I know you know what happened.
1: It's pretty obvious. After you said that they got the stall warning after like uh, yeah, yeah, I know. I, if everyone I know you can't see me but raise your hand if you know what happened.
0: Yeah. <laughs> of don't course I know what happened. Miranda yeah, what happened? She's raising her hand. The flaps. Yeah.
1: They were not extended.
0: I knew you would figure this out pretty <laughs> quick. There's not a good way to hide that.
1: <laughs> so the only reason I was able to figure that out. is one, Christy gave a clue because she's like, I wish they would talk about some other stuff. Which means they did not complete the before takeoff. They did not do the before check- takeoff checklist. They did
0: oh, a- so many things. Oh, that's a whole thing we'll get into. Yeah.
1: Because they, they would have extended the flaps had they done that. Yeah. And also, then you said something. They, they hit the stall warning after going about 25 feet up. And I'm like, yep, it's flaps.
0: Yes,
2: labs. it was. Laps or not,
0: you open. know too much now.
2: <laughs> you are not effective at your role anymore. <laughs> okay. Isn't that a good thing, though? Me yes. I yes, I mean, yes, yes, yes. you've learned. But
0: <sighs> y'all would be very capable pilots should you ever want it to be. I mean, really, you would. Like this... the
2: second something goes wrong, I have a panic attack and nothing goes right ever again.
0: You would never get to that point because you know everything about the aircraft.
2: Yeah. <laughs> I don't think anyway. any. Medical personnel, whatever, deem me fit to fly. I just, I I'm, I'm too short.
0: <laughs> I mean, you can
2: fly regional jets. I don't want to do that.
0: You can fly small airplanes just for fun.
1: No. I flew <laughs> your dad's airplane for a fraction of a second and I did
0: not like it. <laughs> once you, you do it, it a little bit, once you did it a little bit, you'd probably. I don't know. You'd probably I, get used to it. If I understood. I don't know that you would ever, you don't, I'm not saying you have to love it, but you would probably get better and you'd probably understand it I better. Under,
1: if I understood the controls and how they controlled better, mm-hmm. cause he was kind of like, okay, go. I'm like, what?
0: Someday, if I ever actually set up a home simulator properly, that would be the way to like learn the feel best okay. before actually getting in another airplane and a real airplane. In
2: any case. So please Explain. This investigation was performed by the Comisión de Investigación de Accidentes e Incidentes de Aviación Civil, or the CIAIAC, which means the Civil Aviation Accident and Incident Investigation Commission. That was a whole (laughs) mouthful. Yes, it Uh is. They worked with the assistance of the USNTSB, Boeing, as the successor to McDonnell Douglas, and Pratt & Whitney, who manufactured the engines. Uh Uh-huh. Both the FDR and CVR were recovered from the wreckage the evening of the crash and were transported to the AAIB lab in the UK for analysis, and the data was able to be successfully retrieved. 100 hours of 64 parameters from the FDR and 32 minutes of 4 channels from the CVR. However, the following parameters for the FDR were not recorded correctly, probably due to a problem with the connection between the number 2 flight guidance computer and the flight data acquisition unit. Position of horizontal stabilizer, position of elevator, angle of attack, position of outboard left spoiler, position of inboard right spoiler, position of left aileron, position of rudder, position of slats, left and right, autopilot status, and the left and right main landing gear ground signal. (sighs) I'm out of breath.
0: There's a lot of points.
2: Yes, but not all of them.
0: And that's not near as many as they record these days.
2: Correct. Now there's hundreds of parameters. Oh my God. I think the last episode- Literally everything. The last episode we said had 370 parameters? Mm-hmm. Something like that. Yeah.
0: It records quite literally everything. Every button switch breaker in the cockpit's pretty much a record point.
2: Not always. There was one that was on the most recent one, my brain's breaking, Um, mm-hmm. that was not recorded out of the 370 parameters. Yeah. Anyway. Anyway. The first impact mark started 200 feet from the runway, passed over a road, then continued 1,800 feet before crashing on the far side of the river leaving a trail of wreckage in its wake. Given that the aircraft only got about 30 to 40 feet above the ground, there were immediate concerns about why it couldn't climb. The first thought was, were the engines working properly? Good thought, good thought. Good thought. If the engines, for whatever reason, were unable to generate thrust, that would explain the failure to climb. However, it was fairly easy to discount this theory early on, given how much mud and foliage... Foilage. Foilage. ...had been ingested by both engines. Which, when coupled with the damage to the engines, led investigators to conclude that both engines were operating at high speed and were operating normally until impact.
1: Also, like during the story, Nick's talking about like the hit V1, mm-hmm. right? Like if they're having an en- an engine issue, which they had said an engine isn't working, but that wouldn't make sense. They wouldn't be able to function prop. It wouldn't have been able to get to V1. Mm-hmm. So if an engine was out, they'd have to do V2 instead.
2: So, I want to touch on that real quick, just because you pointed out that they had that conversation and I didn't write it into my analysis because okay. I wondered if we would ever hit that. Sorry. <laughs> um, that was because of the whole auto throttle situation. Right. Yep. So, the first officer was the one who initiated all of the conversations like, we're not using the auto throttle, right? We're doing this manually, right? Hello, hello. Yeah, we're doing it this way, right? Five times.
0: Mm hmm he was a little nervous and
2: about the engine apprehensive
0: about the way the engines were going to be handled.
2: So investigators attribute the conversation, the very brief conversation about is an engine failing or whatever to the whole auto throttle wariness.
1: Yes, which I, uh, makes sense, but they still wouldn't have been able to reach V1 if an engine had gone out. No. And, and there was also no big like engine stuff but it's sounds-
2: also there were sounds missing.
0: So but i also understand his apprehension because this was like an almost 3 hour long flight that they were going to have to operate entirely without an auto throttle
2: which is being in the a- it's different. a
0: very long flight without auto throttle to have to like constantly is adjust it really
2: a 3 hour flight to carry islands yeah.
0: mm-hmm. i mean they have
2: to, they have to go pretty far anyway so what about weight and balance we know from several previous episodes including you ready for a list here we go episode 10 with uta flight 141 episode 32 with national flight 102 episode 43 with air midwest flight 5041 and episode 67 with fine air flight 101 flying with improper weight and balance doesn't go very well on takeoff
0: nope not at all
2: please check out all of
0: those and this airport is las palmas Gran canaria is las palmas
2: oh okay
0: anyways sorry, sorry. they are one sorry. of the same sorry. sorry moving on
2: i'm a disaster So investigators reviewed the flight manifest, the cargo manifest, the fuel load, and the loading documentation to determine how much weight was loaded and where. Important. If the maximum takeoff weight was exceeded or the center of gravity was not within limits, it would make sense why the flight didn't get very far off the ground. Well, guess what? All of those things were fine. Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay, what's next? Investigators were made aware of the scenario regarding the RAM air temperature probe and how it had to be disabled, leading to no auto throttle, so that the crew had to handle the throttles manually. Given that the engines were already debunked as the cause, this did not lead to any immediate concern. Next!
0: There is something you have not touched on yet. Like, there's something, not that you haven't touched on, there's something you haven't touched on, you haven't figured out yet, that I'm... Waiting? Minorly surprised. It's okay. Continue.
1: I don't know. I'm also cross-touching at the same time. It's so okay.
0: So okay. It's alright. It's alright.
1: <laughs> Be aware that I'm not fully, completely
2: engaged.
0: I know. But there's a question you haven't asked, and I'm a little surprised. It's okay. Continue.
2: Um, I have it in my notes that she asks, hopefully, at some point. Maybe she'll figure it out.
0: Yes. It's okay.
2: Anyway. Next. Maintenance also reported that the right thrust reverser was disabled for this flight. Ha ha. Ha ha. Wrenching plans. Did they have bucket reversers? Yes. Yes. Got it.
0: So these are the dangerous ones.
2: These are the ones you really don't want to deploy. In the middle of a flight? Or Mm any time other than on landing. Mm Mm-hmm. This theory was one that was presented in the media because they had gotten a hold of pictures of the wreckage that showed that a thrust reverser was deployed in the wreckage. But the picture was of the left thrust reverser. And now you are confused. (laughs) I mean, it's a bucket reverser, so... We know from Lauda Flight 4, which we covered in episode 26, that accidental deployment of a thrust reverser is absolutely potentially fatal in flight, as there's no way to immediately control the aircraft. After extensive examination of the left thrust reverser and its damage, it was found that the left thrust reverser deployed after impact and as the engine was dragged along the ground. Yeah. The right thrust reverser could not have deployed because it was wired shut pending a repair.
0: Which is what they're supposed to do when it's in-op. They're supposed to wire it shut.
2: Because these are tail-mounted engines, it's actually not on the MEL that you need both thrust reversers. (laughs) The amount of yaw because it's so far back, isn't as significant as wing-mounted engines. Mm -hmm. So they are allowed to land with only one thrust reverser. Okay. Don't love it, but uh, that's how it'd be.
0: And unfortunately very regular thing, too, actually.
2: Okay, what else do we have? Maybe at this point, Miranda has already yelled flaps and flats. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
0: That happened pretty early on. (laughs) (laughs)
2: Like immediately after. (laughs) Yeah, uh yeah. We know that Northwest Flight 255, which we covered in episode 59, was also an MD-82 that crashed on takeoff because the flaps and slats were not configured properly. What do you know? Why is that important? On takeoff, you must have the flaps extended out the back of the wing and the slats extended out the front of the wing to increase the surface area of the wing. That way you get the lift
0: off. Uh They move in tandem. There's not usually separate... Levers yeah. for these, although there were aircraft in existence that did.
2: We covered one that This had aircraft this thing, also right? has an auto slats thing.
0: Yes. If you correct. only do
2: the flaps, then it. Anyway. Mm-hmm. So, doing so, uh, having the flaps and slats, allows you to have more lift at slower speeds, meaning you are able to take off at a slower speed than without them. If you try to take off without them, but thinking you have them, you don't make it very high before stalling and crashing. No, you do not. <laughs> kind of <laughs> sounds like this. Unfortunately, investigators couldn't just look at the flaps and the wreckage and say, oh, they were extended or, oh, no, they weren't. Because hydraulic fluid leaked out, meaning that the final position may not be the same as when the flaps were configured for takeoff. Oh, right. So, so they basically are now able to, like, float.
0: And, right. And that's not. They really weren't sure in the end.
2: But I bet that's one of the things that the FDR caught, though. Oh, let me get there.
0: We're getting there.
2: So they analyzed the lever mechanism of the flaps because there's a chance that the impact would have left dents, scratches, or some kind of damage known as a witness mark that indicates the position of the lever at impact. Lo and behold, there was a deep scratch at zero degrees or in the retracted position. Okay, but maybe that was like just a weird fluke at impact? It nah. wasn't. Is nah. there another way of confirming the flap setting at takeoff? There is investigators got the recordings back from the CVR, and they listened as during one of the checklists, the first officer confirmed that the flaps were set to 11 degrees, the correct setting. Okay. But we know that that's not always a reliable sign that something in the cockpit was actually checked.
0: Because it wasn't.
2: Especially given that when he was going through that step, it was also checking center of gravity, flaps on the lever, and flaps on the LCD screen with the flap slats indicator, and they were all very quick. It was like 8, 11, 11. Done. Yeah, it it was. Uh, you're going into autopilot. Yep. yep. There's no you're way not actually checking
0: it. He didn't actually check.
2: There's no way he visually scanned through all of those things in that span of time. Nope. So, what are we gonna go look at? The flaps and slats. The FDR. The FDR. <laughs> I said we can't look at the flaps and plots. Sorry. <laughs> so let's check and that FDR. <laughs> so yeah. Let's check the FDR. The flap setting was not affected by the erroneous readings for all of those parameters I listed earlier, by the way. On the first taxi, the crew definitely set the flaps to 11 degrees. But then they had to go back to the terminal and get that temperature probe looked at. Did they reset the flaps when they taxied out for real? This item is checked three times during the pre-flight checklist.
0: There are three different checklists this was involved in.
2: Why is it so many? Because that item had been skipped during Northwest Flight 255, so the checklists were updated to check that item numerous times since it's such a crucial setting. Well, you see, (laughs) apparently that's not enough. (laughs) You see. You see. You
0: might be right.
2: (laughs) The flaps were the last item in the after-start checklist, at which point the captain interrupted the checklist and asked the first officer to make a radio call, and the first officer name never came back to that step. What? What? According to air disasters, he asked get permission from air traffic control to taxi, will ya?"
0: Yeah. Right in the middle of his checklist, right at the flaps point.
2: When he was supposed to set the flaps.
0: I didn't state that point specifically, but I actually did say this in the story. It's very I, I did it that way on purpose. Quite literally. Where is it? Where did I read that? Let's see here. I'm close. Yeah, right here. The engines now were started and. The after start checklist was performed. The captain then asked the first officer to request permission to begin taxi to 36 left from the ATC. That's all I stated. Mm-hmm. But he actually asked that in the middle of the checklist. after start checklist,
2: which is bad.
1: CRM. It is bad. I was going to say, where's the CRM here? Also, uh. I have a feeling this is going to come up and maybe it won't. Maybe this is like a false thing. Mm-hmm. But um, they have another person in the cockpit, right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. what about sterile cockpit?
2: <laughs> nope.
0: Talk about that, too.
2: I don't talk about it, but it was mentioned in the uh, very lengthy analysis at one point that there were instances of non-sterile cockpit.
0: I have. Good guess. Yes.
2: The CBR picked up the rushed and irritable tone in the captain's voice, probably as a combination of being super late and it being insanely hot in the cockpit.
0: I don't blame him.
2: Yeah, to be fair, fair, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're going to get grumpy because it's hot, but you still have to do your job right. Yes. The quicker they could get the engines going, the quicker there would be air conditioning. Okay, so we're going through the taxi checklist, which has a sub checklist of the takeoff briefing, which also has to check the flaps and slats. Yep. They skipped the takeoff briefing altogether.
0: They didn't do the takeoff briefing.
2: What? Uh-huh. Which also means that they did not discuss the M.E.L. item at that stage of whether or not the probe, auto-throttle, all that jazz. Obviously, they mentioned it five other times, but it was not mentioned in the takeoff briefing because there was no takeoff briefing. Anyway, great, great, <laughs> great. Okay, they Is have it? one more chance, but that was the one investigators already knew about where the checks were super rushed. Yeah. Long story short, the flaps and slats were never set as evidenced by the fact that the flaps read as retracted on the FDR all the way until impact.
1: Well, and there's not really a great way to fix that after you've lifted it off.
2: Nope. Nope. But wait a hot second. Miranda didn't guess this. No, I didn't. There's a warning system. Oh,
1: the master caution. Why
2: did the master caution go off?
0: And specifically, this is the takeoff warning system. Or toes. Which tells them when they're in configured.
1: Uh,
2: it's yeah. designed to yell I
1: at you. I completely forgot about that system.
0: They have not been configured for takeoff, and it's supposed to tell them. It's
2: supposed to say, "Hey, why are you doing takeoff? You're it's not supposed to say to something takeoff.
0: along the lines of like takeoff flaps, takeoff flaps."
2: The CDR never picked up that warning, and it definitely would have alerted the crew to extend their flaps and slats. So what the hell? Very professionally. Well, investigators dug into the electronic mappings of that system. And found that that warning system is actually tied to the RAM air temperature probe through the R25 relay. Are you kidding me? Upon analysis, it was determined that the RAM air temperature probe probably was throwing erroneous values because the relay probably failed, and therefore the configuration warning did not sound. The odds of those two being tied together? Astronomical.
0: Unbelievably astronomical.
2: Stupid, one might say. Investigators were unable to reproduce the problem with the accident relay, but it also went through a whole uh, accident. So, they weren't surprised there's uh, probably jostling that would have changed internal electronic mechanisms. I am not an electronics engineer. Don't ask me. I don't understand that crap. Why were these two unrelated systems going through the same relay? A uh, great question, and I don't have an answer for you.
0: That's just how they designed it.
2: And that's how my notes end. Oh, McDonald Douglas.
0: Yes. So, oh, McDonald Douglas. So the probe being out on its own would not affect the toes. However, the relay, the relay being out affects both.
2: Which is why the Ram Air Temperature Probe had an issue in the first place. Right. So they unknowingly had an issue with the configuration warning.
0: Which is just insane, because those two can cause a problem for one another, and in order for... One to not work, you still need the other one to work.
2: It was a perfect storm.
0: For them to be tied together to one system does not introduce a fail-safe.
1: Well, there's that. And also, if the pilots did their goddamn job right, they wouldn't have had to use that system anyway. This was
0: very much a perfect storm.
1: But also, why didn't they just switch aircraft? I feel like... (laughs) Like, to be fair... Also, yes. it's It's a process, right? Like, everybody would have to get off. They'd have to flip the aircraft, right? But... There would have been air conditioning in the terminal. Yep. And like, you would have had to wait, but you also had to wait because of the maintenance anyway. So, yep. I mean, and you're going to be late. Might as well just let them look at the airplane and figure out what's going on and fix it so they can use it later. I don't know. I, to be fair, I'm playing Monday morning quarterback, right? Like, yes. Monday night quarterback, whatever. Like I, There I'm-
0: you go, thinking... Logical Common thoughts. sense and logical thoughts again.
2: <laughs> how dare you? <laughs> also, once work. again, how dare you guess the entire thing again? For an MD-80 something.
0: Mm-hmm. How dare. So. Dude.
2: I mean. But dude. I know. Yeah. But dude. I know. <laughs> <laughs> that was so stupid.
1: Why can't. Okay. I know we have had this conversation, I think, every week for mm-hmm. the past month.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Why can't they just figure this out? And, before
0: it causes an accident? Yeah. The, now, to be fair, now the f- all of thing- the things that were in place as backups and backups on backups and such should have kept this from they happening. They
2: had three whole checklist items all checking the same damn thing. Yes, but why do they have the two things on the
1: same relay that would cause because
0: problems? The odds of this actually causing the accident were still unbelievably low thanks to the checklists.
2: But, but somehow, but, <laughs> but exactly, but I
1: agree. Anyway, we're gonna take a break,
0: <laughs> and then we'll come back and I'm we'll upset, do. But we go take a break, findings and recommendations, and we'll have more discussion about. That.
1: Okay, we're back. Hello. Welcome back to the disaster show. Right. So. Let's talk about the disaster.
0: This one, I I like what you said. You are like, I don't remember this one. Because here's the thing. This was a really prominent accident in aviation history. It's funny how these things happen in Spain. Because I would say that this was the deadliest accident in Spain but it but it wasn't even close
1: technically Tenerife was Tenerife
0: wasn't even technically it was it was the deadliest <laughs> well
1: cuz people wouldn't say on, that that's not mainland Spain that
0: no, Spain owns Tenerife but it was yes it was on Spain soil Spanish Spanish soil this was the deadliest accident on Spanish soil was Tenerife it's this not
1: was in Spain but it was
0: this accident was also very deadly and a big deal <laughs> Because there were so many things in place that really should have kept this from happening. And yeah, it still happened. Please so. tell
1: me we talk about CRM and training. We do. Thank you. What do you know? I don't think I've ever heard Dr. go
2: that high <laughs> before.
0: Oh, it goes way higher than that. But this was my yes, as a matter of fact, we do voice.
1: That's good because uh, that was bad. That was yeah. real bad.
0: There were a whopping 78 findings on this report. Why? There were also 42 recommendations. Oh, no. Which I don't think I've seen that many in a report. I don't do even a third of either one. So. Bless you. I do a lot, but I don't do that many. Let's dive into these findings and these wrecks, and we'll we'll talk about some of this stuff. They found that according to the FDR data, in the days before the accident, there were five, count them, five cases of the rat probe overheating on the ground. Three of these were not recorded in the... Aircraft Technical Logbook, so nobody reported them, because they were not detected. The other two were noticed and logged by the crews.
1: And they didn't fix the problem?
0: Nope. They kept deferring.
1: (sighs) That's so annoying.
0: They found that different maintenance practices were used to deal with the two recorded cases of rat probe temperature overheating on the ground. So they had done other things to try to fix it, but never actually fixed the problem, basically. Well,
1: and was it... Was it the probe or was it the relay? They, In the it,
0: end, it was the relay.
1: But it presented as the probe. The
0: probe. It was the most notable problem, and so it was the most noticeable issue. So they had issue.
1: just replaced the probe, and it kept happening. When they figured it out, it was the relay. Then yes, yes.
0: they should have figured so out. So why it was did the they relay. keep
1: deferring the maintenance and not just fix the like replace the probe? Because uh, a agreed. plane does not make money when it's getting
2: repaired. I realize that, but when something is like happening over and over again and the airline was going through strong financial difficulties and was uh let me let me pull up my notes real quick from the episode they had plans to cut a third of their workforce
0: they were under deep financial stress
2: they were well in... they don't exist anymore so they No, were they don't deep... oh. yeah
0: no this accident it's... is why they don't exist anymore
2: but another factor that was used as part of the poor CRM was the fact that they were going underwater they were planning to cut a third of their workforce. So on-time performance, or OTP, as it is known in the industry. Yes. <laughs> I only know that because he said. I right hear there. it every day. Uh, was a big deal, and so the fact that they were so late, like they were worried they're going to lose your, their jobs.
1: Yep. But again, that shouldn't. That shouldn't.
0: Agreed. Outside <laughs> pressures like that should not exist.
1: It shouldn't be a thing against safety, though.
0: Like agreed.
1: I realize that the probe was not completely needed, but if it had constantly been an issue, then you probably should replace the probe.
0: So I agree, but the reality still remains that it was. So they found that opening breaker Zulu 29 interrupts the flow of electricity to the rat probe heater and to the TRP, but has no effect on the toes. So that breaker in specific does not affect the toes. It wouldn't have stopped the toes from working, which is why they know the relay didn't work.
2: Even though they couldn't replicate it, that's the only thing that would make sense to cause both issues. Right. But the pulling of the circuit breaker would not have affected the warning system.
0: Right. They found that the maintenance tasks did not succeed in solving the problem with the aircraft, which, along with the high temperature in the cabin and the prolonged delay, could have made the captain feel a need to hurry up. Andale, andale. 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 They found that the crew did not observe the sterile cockpit principle. In addition to using cellular telephones while taxiing, they held conversations in the cockpit with a third person on topics that were irrelevant to the flight activities. This contributed to distracting the crew from its flight duties. They found that the Spanair Operations Manual and European Union regulations define when the sterile cockpit is in effect, but do not specify what activities detrimental to crew attention are prohibited during this period. This is an interesting one. They would say, this is sterile cockpit time, this specifically. So saying, like, from engine start to 10,000 feet, this is sterile cockpit.
2: But they don't say what's prohibited. And what I skimmed through this briefly in the analysis, what they're getting at here is it didn't ban cell phone usage, Mm
0: -hmm. which
2: was at the time banned in the United States. Right. And so they alluded to that. Yep. Like, hey, the U.S. is doing this. Why don't we do this? Right. Right. Not that everything the U.S. does, other people should do.
0: No, but the FAA still was more strict on these things, and it was proving to work. So, yes, maybe something we should do. They found that the pilots used the Span Air checklists, but did not fully complete them. Some items in the checklists were omitted, and the actions required in other items were not carried out. Deviations occurred during the execution of operation procedures, and the lack of oversight resulted in the flaps and slats not being selected and in the selected position not being verified. So the CRM really broke down on the checklist is really Mm -hmm. what that gets at. They found that by omitting the takeoff briefing item in the taxi checklist and doing a visual inspection during the takeoff imminent checklist that did not constitute an actual confirmation of the position of the flaps and slats, the crew missed additional opportunities to notice and correct their error in configuring the airplane. CRM, out the window. So, they didn't actually follow the checklists that they had.
2: Jumping ahead a little bit to the way things work today. Mm Mm-hmm. So, yes, there are still these checklists of, hey, check to make sure that the flaps and slats are set. But Mm -hmm. these checklists are now done on a computer in the cockpit. Right. And so when you say, yes, I verify that the flaps and slats are checked, the computer says, hey, I don't see that they're checked. Are you sure?
0: Right. Between that and it requires you to actually physically check off that item until you move on to the next one. It doesn't allow you to skip over things reading certain items, which is very easy to do on a written out checklist. Mm -hmm. It actually allows you to it forces you to go through each item and check it off. They found that there are discrepancies in the task assignments for selecting the flaps and slats position between the operators expanded and reduced checklists. This is a little bit of a complicated one. So they had two different sets of checklists. Basically, they had a very lengthy full set of checks on the checklist, or they had basically an abbreviated set for absolute minimum requirements. And what they found is that the CRM portion is not clear in those checklists in the way that they train it about who does what. So in those checklists, does the pilot monitoring do the flaps and slats check and set? Or does the pilot flying? And it is also not the same in both checklists. Which makes that inconsistency an extra point of failure.
1: I feel like it should be whoever's monitoring calls it out, and whoever's flying does the actual check.
0: Not always that way, though. But no matter which way you do it, it should be, be consistent. consistent in all checklists. Whenever yeah, that yeah, point the happens... supposed to
1: check it, though, anyway?
0: It should be done that way, although it's common where there are duties where like the first officer being the pilot flying will read through the checklist and do all of actually do all the physical verification of those items. But the thing the, the, what they're really trying to get at here is should a point be on a checklist where it says verify flap setting or set flaps and then another checklist also has verify flap setting. They should not be done by two different people in those two different checklists. It should be the same person, the same, whether it be pilot monitoring or pilot flying, it should be the same position in the CRM. Agreed. The same CRM role. They found that the takeoff warning system, or TOES, did not issue any warnings during the takeoff run regarding the improper configuration of the airplane. Now, of course it didn't. We know this was a really critical thing because not having that verification, not having that feedback was the last line of defense when they went to full throttle or takeoff thrust, really, not full throttle, but takeoff thrust. And that is a critical moment. They found that the simultaneous occurrence of various warnings in the cockpit, the crew's mistaken perception regarding the airplane's configuration, and the little time available contributed to not recognizing the stall conditions and therefore to not carry out the stall recovery procedure, which they had been trained on a stall recovery procedure, but it didn't touch on takeoff and it didn't touch on... Flaps and slats. And they didn't have enough time to figure these things out since it wasn't trained into them. We'll talk about that in a minute because that does come up in the recommendations. They found that the first officer wondered if the situation was caused by an engine failure and momentarily retarded the throttle levers. So the first officer actually grabbed the throttles and reduced them. Don't do that. When they were in the stall situation, which is an absolute do not do. Thinking that something was wrong... With, with the, the throttles. Yeah. Now, the reason that I have to assume he thought that, or an engine failure,
2: they thought he thought something was wrong with the auto throttle.
0: He thought something was wrong with the auto throttle, but he also knew that the thrust reverser didn't work.
2: No, because they didn't discuss it in their takeoff briefing that they didn't have.
0: True, but still,
2: I'm still salty.
0: They found that the training that the crew had received did not include takeoff stalls, nor was such training required by existing regulations. So not only were they not trained mm-hmm. on stall recovery at takeoff, yeah. it wasn't required in the regulations set forth by the EASA or by Spain. That may or may not have changed. Just alluding to the recommendation. Because <laughs> that's a pretty key thing. That's a critical moment of flight. Seems pretty crazy to overlook pretty that. important. hmm Yeah. It found that insofar as this case is concerned, the R25, which is R2-5 relay, is responsible for activating the rat probe heater in flight and turning it off when the airplane is on the ground. It also provides ground flight information to the toes, enabling the system when the airplane is on the ground and inhibiting it when in flight. These are normal. So when you're asking about tying everything to this relay, that's the real reason that the system was designed to tie to one relay, is that seems like the simplest thing to do from an engineering standpoint. When the information that both things needed, the probe and the toes, as well as a couple other systems were tied to this relay, what the information that that relay provides is when the airplane is on ground and when it's in the air. And that's when it switches system from activated and deactivated. I mean, so the simplest thing to do by design is design one relay that reads on ground from the landing gear or in air from the landing gear and then provide that information to the rest of the systems. The but there's no failsafe.
1: I may I mainly have. Mm-hmm. No, there is like the probe kept not working, right? right? Yep. If they had just replaced the probe and then, and then it, it stopped it was still working not working again, right? Then it would have been like maybe there's something wrong with the electrical system that is right ch- that is physically connected to this piece of equipment.
0: Yes, you are correct.
1: But they kept deferring the maintenance, mm-hmm. and if I mean you're not if and they kept they kept trying to fix it right. They kept mm-hmm. like resetting the breaker and doing all this stuff, and it wasn't working. Which means either the part isn't working mm-hmm. or. The electrical system that fuels the part is not working. Right. So, I don't know. I think, ultimately, is the engineering completely horrible? No. But it's... I'm just disappointed by the fact... And I realize, like, the whole money thing. Like, I get it. But...
0: Yes, but still. It could have
1: been easily fixed if they had just replaced the part to begin with.
0: And to that end, not just Spanair, but across all MD-80s, but also at Spanair, to your point... They did exactly that, actually. There are several instances where they would have these issues, and in those instances, they would replace the relay, and it would fix the issue. So it was a known fix for this problem, of course. It was in maintenance manuals, as a matter of fact. This wasn't an untold situation, but like you said, they hadn't replaced the probe, and they hadn't done the necessary steps to actually get to that point.
1: Well, and maybe like one of the steps is just replace the relay and see if it works, right? Something
0: that was suggested, and this is strange, I didn't understand this, but it said it was suggested by the flight attendant in the jump seat, as well as it was suggested on another instance by one of the maintenance technicians, but they never actually did it, was to use dry ice on the probe to cool it down and they were hoping that that would reset the temperature sensor on the probe.
2: That solution had actually been used on one of the previous maintenance
0: yes. attempts to fix the situation. Right. But it it was always negated because the flight crew said like it, it won't fix the issue. It's going to be still going to be overheating. It'll just go right back to hot.
1: Which like okay, Like, maybe you figure out that's a temporary fix, but if it's a constant problem, it's a parts problem. Yeah, address the actual problem. Address the actual problem. Don't try to have a quick fix for it and to get the airplane off the ground. If it's a consistent problem, fix the problem. Agreed. Keep the airplane overnight. Replace the probe.
0: Right.
2: If it's still happening, it's probably the relay. Right. right? Probably lost more money. Due to this crash, and they would have keeping an airplane somewhere. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And they had a backup airplane. It wasn't even that...
0: Right. They literally had another right. solution.
1: Like, it, it's not even just that, like, it would have lost money being on the ground. Because, I know, maybe it yeah, was, yeah. right? But, but you ha- they had a backup.
0: Right. They were so in they, Madrid. They were in a hub. They had another... They
2: could have at least made that flight.
0: Yeah. Yep. And it begs the question, like, would Spanair have survived as a company... This accident never happened. We will never know because That's a this big accident one if. because this accident really was ultimately the true downfall for Spanish. They were already in financial troubles. They had the accident. There was then way too many problems leading to their ultimate demise as a company. Understandably so. Quite frankly, they found that the connection.
2: It, uh, by the way, it ceased operations four years later.
0: Yeah, but three they blamed. Three and a half. They blamed this accident because there was no recovering from this accident, both financially but also from a PR perspective. Everybody in Spain knew who this airline was after this.
1: And wouldn't want to fly them. And
0: they didn't want to fly them. Which they got a really bad blame them. No. If you know anything about Spaniards too, most of them are kind of afraid of flying. <laughs> and I didn't know that. They will not want to fly on an airline like Spanair after they've had a major accident.
2: Just reading something from the Spanair Wikipedia page. A report in the British newspaper The Times on the day of the 2008 Madrid crash suggests that the staff were threatening strike action due to concerns about the company's viability. In 2009, the airline asked for public input on a new logo, with a winner being officially confirmed on May thirteenth, two 2009. They were
0: trying to do what every brand tries to do when they're Rebrand, under, yeah. When they're, which is also... Honestly, it's a stupid mistake. I understand trying to rebrand after an accident and terrible financial crisis, like wanting to make yourself look good so that you come back from it. And it has worked on very rare occasion. But most of the time, that is an unbelievably expensive endeavor mm-hmm. for a company that you have does not work.
2: Repaint
1: all the airplanes and
0: reprint all of the different things, the assets. You have to re outfit your crews. You have to. There's so many things that come with rebranding that just does not actually financially viably work in saving a company that's in financial distress.
2: As of June 2009, Spanair began applying the new corporate identity to their aircraft. On January 25th, 2011, the company was in an emergency financial situation. The Catalan government approved a 10.5 million euro loan plan in order to save it. Revenue improved and the company was cutting costs. Financially troubled during its last few years, Spanair ended operations on January 27, 2012, after Qatar Airways pulled out of talks to inject cash into the airline.
0: Qatar has always been a weird airline injecting cash into a lot of small airplanes.
2: As a result, SAS had a write-down of 1.7 billion Swedish kronor, the equivalent of 251 million U.S. dollars. On a past the development minister of Spain said that the Spanish government may find the airline 9 million euros, or 12 million dollars, U.S., After breaking serious aviation security rules by shutting down without proper notice. (laughs) The carrier said all flights will remain suspended, but it did not say whether it planned to file for bankruptcy. The last passenger flight was fan air flight 1326 from Trondheim to Las Palmas.
0: And they never came back. They were done for good. They found that the connection between the rat probe overheating on the ground and the fault in the toes could not be reliably established in this case. So,
2: Okay, again, electronics are finicky.
0: But we know the relay replacing it fixed both problems in other instances. So we know that there's one common part.
1: I mean, would they have known initially that the relay was it? Hell no. no. But if they didn't replace the part and check it, how would they know?
0: Right. Well, and the part when they took it off of the airplane after the accident, they tested it and they couldn't prove that it was the problem, but that's because it also had been in an accident. So (laughs) how could they? To that end, they said, they found that there are failure modes to the toes that are not related to a malfunction of the rat probe heater on the ground. The data available could only rule out some of these possible failure modes. So there are other ways that the toes could have stopped working, but they couldn't rule all of them out, just some. So there was really no way that they could prove specifically that it was the relay, but it's it's pretty much a like 99% chance.
2: It's a... Uh non coincidental overlap between the two.
0: Right. Much more probable than improbable. Uh, let's see here. I've only got a few more findings. This is gets interesting. They found that the Spanair maintenance personnel that handled the rat probe heater malfunction at Brajas, that's the airport in Madrid, before the accident did I not it was
2: Barajas.
0: Yes, Brajas, Yes. Barajas. Yes. Before the accident, did not consult the aircraft's maintenance manual
2: oh solid
0: they consulted the mel to find out if it was required for flight but they didn't consult the maintenance manual to figure out what the actual fix should be
2: did the maintenance manual say the right thing
0: they found that the actions taken by Spanair's maintenance personnel at barajas to detect the source of the problem and fix the rat probe heater were limited and the mel was used for the purpose of allowing the airplane to be dispatched so they weren't wrong they weren't wrong But there were other fixes suggested in the maintenance manual. manual.
2: I wonder if it said anything about the relay. It
0: probably did. It probably said to replace the probe, test, and then replace the relay. Yeah. And the very last one I'm going to read is also the very last finding. I skip a lot. I skipped a lot of these, by the way. They found that there were communications problems between the tower and the airport firefighters stemming from a lack of coordination in the frequencies used.
2: Probably because yeah, there's, a there's a million of them. 50
1: billion frequencies. <laughs> You're correct. Oh my god. <laughs> really? They had
0: issues? Why? Yeah. There was no common frequency set up for emergency pro- for emergency services at the airport, which by the way, every major commercial airport in the US has a common frequency used during emergencies. Even if that's agreed upon as like the ground frequency, there's one common frequency used during emergency situations.
2: Yeah. Okay.
0: Okay. But I did skip a lot of findings, but a lot of them were kind of very matter of fact. And then all they were really doing was retelling the story. So I didn't I have
2: need to, to read that. this whole thing. Yep. <sighs> the <But> causes <laughs> the CIA IAC has determined that the cause occurred because the crew lost control of the airplane as a consequence of entering a stall immediately after takeoff due to an improper airplane configuration involving the non-deployment of the slats flaps following a series of mistakes and omissions, along with the absence of the improper takeoff configuration warning. The crew did not identify the stall warnings and did not correct said situation after takeoff. They momentarily retarded the engine throttles, increased the pitch angle, and did not correct the bank angle, leading to a deterioration of the stall condition. The crew did not detect the configuration error because they did not properly use the checklist, which contained items to select and verify the position of the flaps and slats when preparing the flight. Specifically, They did not carry out the action to select the flaps and slats with the associated control lever in the after start checklist. They did not cross check the position of the lever or the status of the flap and slat indicating lights when executing the after start checklist. They omitted the check of the flaps and slats during the takeoff briefing item on the taxi checklist. The visual check done when executing the final items on the takeoff imminent checklist was not a real check of the position of the flaps and slats as displayed on the instruments in the cockpit. The CIA IAC has identified the following contributing factors. The absence of an improper takeoff configuration warning resulting from the failure of the toes to operate, which thus did not warn the crew that the airplane's takeoff configuration was not appropriate. The reason for the failure of the toes to function could not be reliably established. Improper crew resource management, or CRM, which did not prevent the deviation from procedures in the presence of unscheduled interruptions to flight preparations.
0: And that is it. That yeah, pretty well summarizes it, though. I mean, yeah, everything, honestly. <laughs> everything we really talked about.
2: This is one of those probable causes that the way it reads, you don't have to go read the whole report to know what happened.
0: Yep. It will tell you right straight out pretty much the whole story. So, obviously, with that probable cause, it primarily found the majority of the issue to be CRM and crew-based issues. It was mostly a human error and human factors. So, rightfully so, the vast majority of the recommendations don't have to do with the relay or the parts or maintenance. They have to do with the human factors in the CRM piece. Again, there were 42 recommendations, but I am not doing the vast majority of those. There were a set of recommendations that had come out immediately after the accident in 2009, before this report came out later in 2011. When this report came out, they issued a whole new series of recommendations. However, it was interesting because in the series of recommendations that came out in 2009, they were able to speak to them in this report and say what had been done about it with those recommendations. And they openly put this in the report, whether or not they were accepted or denied, and what had been done. So I think that was an interesting thing. I will go ahead and begin reading some of these. They are lengthy, mind you. It is recommended that the FAA of the United States and the EASA in Europe require the manufacturer, the Boeing company, to include in its aircraft maintenance manuals for the DC-9 and MD-80 series, in the troubleshooting manual for the MD-90 series, and in the fault isolation manual for the 717 series, specifically identified instructions to detect the cause and to troubleshoot the fault involving the heating of the rat temperature probe while on the ground. While they're on the ground, they should be using very specific means to determine what's wrong with the probe. They shouldn't just be MELing it. They should be identifying the problem, testing, identifying further. And they're saying that this needs to be, this really needs to be in all the different manuals for the same aircrafts that use the probe all the M- all the DC9 derivatives basically. So this one ended up not really being taken forth because they felt Boeing specifically in the FAA actually replied to this one saying it's kind of already there in the maintenance manuals, you just didn't use them. Valid. Was the real reason that that didn't happen? It's not that the fix wasn't suggested or that the tests weren't suggested and the right troubleshooting methods weren't suggested. It's that they weren't used. Could they be more clear? Maybe, but they were already there, so they kind of pushed forward with that. It is recommended that the FAA of the United States establish mandatory airworthiness instructions to modify the procedures contained in the aircraft flight manuals for the DC-9, MD-80, MD-90, and 717 series, so as to include a functional check of the toes prior to each flight. This is interesting, and this is the kind of stuff that I think matters when flight crews first take an aircraft for the day they usually do there's a test in the cockpit that runs through all of the emergency and warning and caution oral and physical checks visual and visual so it does all of these things
2: Was it It not included?
0: shakes the stick shaker. It runs through all the oral warnings and such. And what they're suggesting here is that before a flight, this is a critical system. This should be verified.
2: Are they saying it should be done before every flight?
0: They don't say specifically before every flight, but they say to modify the procedures contained in the aircraft flight manuals to include a functional check of the toes prior to, yes, they do say here, each flight. So. That
2: seems a little excessive.
0: While it seems excessive, maybe it's maybe it matters.
2: But see, I don't know. Does the report say whether or not a check was done that day?
0: I don't know. I didn't find it anywhere, but that doesn't mean much because this is a massive report. Valid three hundred pages. Almost. They actually did not agree with this one because of the each flight piece.
2: Yeah, I can understand that.
0: Right. But they do agree with it on the grounds that it should be done each day, each operational day. And that makes sense. I mean, yeah, I'd back that. Yeah, it's an important thing. It is recommended to the EASA and to the FAA that the design of the toes, the takeoff warning system, be reviewed in transport airplanes whose certification standards did not require the installation of such systems or which, if they did require it, did not apply to them the guidelines and interpretation provided by AMC 25.703 in the case of the EASA or the Circular AC 25.703 in the case of the FAA. The goal of this review should be to require that the TOES comply with the applicable requirements for critical systems classified as essential in CS 25.1309 and FAR 25.1309. Can you tell that the EASA and the FAA have very similar naming conventions? Uh Uh-huh. They, matter of fact, take the same sections and just copy them. They're identical. They work very closely on these things. So all of that to say, the point there is that the toes on these transport category aircraft were not necessarily always required systems, and those aircraft are still flying. Or I don't like flying. that. And even if they were required at manufacture, they weren't necessarily always classified as critical systems when those aircraft came about. And now they're saying standardize that.
2: It should It should be. <laughs> should critical.
0: always be considered a, crati- a critical system and it should be required on all transport category.
2: Seems important.
0: And these days it really is. It it is it an MEL item now? These days, yes. Absolutely it is. This accident may or may not have changed that. <laughs> it is recommended to the EASA and the FAA to revise Circulation CS25 and FAR25, respectively, on the certification of large transport airplanes to add a requirement that ensures that takeoff warning systems are not disabled by a single failure or that they provide the crew with a clear and unequivocal warning when the system fails.
2: Make it robust.
0: Right. It would be wonderful if they had a caution light and a visual warning that hey, the, system, this ain't working. the system wasn't working. The toes was not working, just
1: like what they do with the master caution.
0: Mm-hmm. So that is a backup system. Like that would have been a backup for a backup, basically. An important thing to do. It is recommended that the EASA revise the accompanying guidelines and the clarifying material for CS twenty five certification regulations for large transport airplanes, so as to consider the human errors associated with faults in takeoff configurations when analytically justifying the safety of the toes and to analyze whether the assumptions used when evaluating these systems during their certification are consistent with existing operational experience and with the lessons learned from accidents and incidents. There you go, there's the human errors piece. This is truly the human factors at its finest. It's like everything, there's backups for backups and there's systems in place that are supposed to help you, prevent you from causing human error, but there's still human error involved in those systems also. Uh Uh-huh. And so it's finding all those human error pieces and correcting those issues, much like we've talked about a few times. So that is a critical thing, is identifying how human factors caused this accident and how they can be prevented in other accidents, especially when it comes to designing and certifying parts. It is recommended that the International Civil Aviation Organization or the ICAO and the FAA and the ASA jointly promote The holding of an international conference to be attended by every civil aviation representative organization, such as authorities, industry, academic, and research institutions, professional associations, and the like, for the purpose of drafting directives on good industry practices in the area of aviation operations as they apply to checklist design, personnel training, and improvised procedures and cockpit work methods so as to ensure that crews properly configure aircraft for takeoffs and landings. This recommendation actually came from the ICAO, not from them. They put it in the report at the recommendation of the ICAO, who wanted this meeting held. And believe it or not, they did.
1: That sounds like the most boring conference.
0: While I agree with you, per se...
1: I understand the necessity... It it probably wasn't boring.
0: Yeah, it probably wasn't that boring in the end because what they were doing was world-changing stuff. It really was. They were defining human factors in checklists for takeoff and landing configuration, the most critical points of flight. They convened the most important organizations and people in the world in this, the FAA, the NTSB, the EASA, everybody was there. And they did this. They actually implemented this. They they started working on a very big change to these human factors pieces in checklists and training, which is why so many of these things have been digitized and require actual checkoff. And there's a flow created in the cockpit, a standardized flow that promotes physical use and touch of these items to ensure mm-hmm. you're actually checking them. Now, that was the rest of the recommendations that they had done in 2009 before this report. Now for the new stuff, and again, I only do a handful of these. It is recommended that the United States FAA and the European EASA require takeoff stall recovery as part of initial and recurring training programs for airline transport pilots. So as part of their training, again, this is the human factors piece, train them install recovery at takeoff, not just stall recovery at altitude where you have time to recover. What do you do in an absolute worst case scenario, i.e. you forgot to set the flaps and slats on takeoff? And you have no
2: margin for error. Right.
0: Usually what you do is first check the flaps and slats and immediately set them because that will have a much higher potential of correcting the aircraft. Also, fly the aircraft because that's what they didn't do. He immediately, like, reduced the throttles, but nobody corrected the right roll, which is why the aircraft ultimately stalled and fell. It is recommended that the FAA and the EASA study and assess the stall recovery procedures in the flight manuals of large transport airplanes to include a check of the flaps and slats lever and its adjustment, if required. So, when you go to do a stall recovery, as there are with almost everything in aviation, there are checklists. And when it comes to emergency procedures and irregular procedures, i.e. you have to recover from a stall, no matter the stall, those first items on that list should be done from memory, allowing you to save time and the aircraft potentially. And that's basically what they're suggesting here is making the stall recovery items a checklist item that they have to do from memory right away when there's a need for it, i.e. check the flaps and slats. Right away, it is recommended that the EASA and national civil aviation authorities, when evaluating operator training programs, expressly ensure that one, the concept of sterile cockpit is stressed. No, really,
1: yeah. I mean, we've been talking about this for decades, right? Like, this isn't new, right? And the fact that you know, pilots kind of just didn't care, right? That's a problem,
0: yep. Two, the importance of adhering to said concept is stressed along with the consequences of even minor distractions. And three, examples of accidents are included in which noncompliance with regulations involving the sterile cockpit was a relevant factor. I.E. this one. There's plenty of accidents we have talked about where sterile cockpit was the problem. tan thirty
1: fifty four. Uh-huh. Just saying.
0: Mm hmm.
1: Just to name one.
0: Yep. Of many. That's right. It is recommended that the EASA standardize the CRM training that must be provided to the operations inspectors of national authorities and define the criteria that must be met by said inspectors in order to exercise their duties as inspectors in the area of CRM. When you inspect CRM as an inspector by a national authority of these airlines, you should also have CRM training and it should be standardized so that you may check them to that standard. Pretty reasonable thing to do, honestly. You would think. When you're going to check something, you want to make sure that it's standardized and that you are checking them to the same thing and that everybody checks for the same thing. It is recommended that Spanair expand its operations and instructional procedures to clearly specify the methodology and task sharing to be used by flight crew members when executing and verifying crucial actions like selecting the position of the flaps and slats. Which is the human factors piece again. Like I said, most of these recommendations really hit home to the CRM and the human factors piece. Yeah, because- it was the critical failure here, the real critical failure. It wasn't even so much the technical failure as a human errors failure. And it has to do about the methodology and task sharing. And they really need to put a lot more thought into this as a company span air about how to address those situations, especially when it comes to critical systems. Two more. It is recommended that the FAA modify the Boeing DC-9, MD-80, and MD-90 master minimum equipment list, items 30.8 and 34.9, and others that may be related to rat probe heating on the ground. So that said, items include maintenance and or operating instructions to check the toes. That one right there is critical, and to me, honestly, would have been a showstopper in this instance. Take the bad crew, take the bad CRM, which obviously needed to be fixed anyways, and thankfully they were after this accident, both in the short time that span air still continued, but beyond that, unfortunately this was a learning accident for the whole world, but take that from also, take from that the the change to the DC-90, MD-80, and MD-90, and 717, all that, that when there's an issue with the rat probe, it requires them to also test the toes. After doing a fix.
1: Mm -hmm. Because then you can tell if it's the relay.
0: Right. And you ensure that it still works. So that it still fixes this issue. (laughs) Regardless of the fact that the crew missed configuring the aircraft, this would have fixed that. This would have saved the accident from occurring. And last one I'm doing. It is recommended that the EASA draft guidelines and instructions so that national authorities are better able to assess the general situation of commercial air transport operators that undergo notable changes such as a rapid expansion, a significant growth in their resources, or the opposite situation, a reduction in their activity or resources, such as through personnel layoffs, the purpose being for authorities to constantly adapt their monitoring plans to consider their evaluation of these changes so as to proactively detect and assess risk factors that point to a possible degradation in safety level. Absolutely. And I agree with this 10,000%. When a company is expanding super rapidly, which there are a number of these days, or are going through financial trouble and also down-gaging and downsizing rapidly, which is also happening these days, it's critical at those times to pay very, very, very close attention to those companies. We've talked about this before, but pay very close attention to those companies to make sure that they're still maintaining a very high level of safety.
1: Yeah, because when you're, we've talked about it before, where companies that expand too fast, mm-hmm. they need to hire too quickly and they don't right. train too as many well. new people. Yeah, safety issues. And then if the other is true, you're they're downsizing. eliminating staff
0: now. You're pushing your resources too hard.
1: Yes and then those staff get overworked and fatigued and, and they scared feel, of
0: losing their job and they yeah. feel a really high pressure to continue in order to continue with their job then yeah these situations can can happen and did right so a lot came out of this this really was a world changing accident in regard to aviation and commercial aviation it was a big deal and it took the world to figure it out and fix it because the biggest the biggest reason why this was such a high profile wasn't just the fact that this happened in Spain. It was a big accident. A lot of people perished, unfortunately. It was the fact that this was not supposed to happen after the Northwest accident. We addressed this already, and yet it still happened. Which proved that there were still things wrong that needed to be fixed.
1: So that was so. spin air flight, I don't remember.
0: 5022.
1: 5022. There you go. Thanks so much for listening. We do have some stuff we need to do, but this is a really long episode, so we'll do it next episode. There yes. we go. There's a couple of listener questions. Trivia questions. Trivia questions. So we'll do that next episode, just because we're going on two hours now
0: yep. on this episode. <laughs> Solidly long one.
1: And it's most of it's going to be kept in. So
0: mm-hmm,
1: mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. we do appreciate you listening, so you should definitely keep putting in listener questions and stuff. We will answer them. We have seen them. It's just the past couple of episodes have been so long that we don't want to elongate them more. Right. (laughs) More for our sake than anything.
0: Yes, people love these long episodes, and I appreciate that. I really do. But for us, it's like we... We also have other things. I gotta go things. home
1: and go to bed. Yes, we also
0: have other things to do.
1: <laughs> so, uh, but thank you so much for listening. As always, you should check out the Patreon. Yes, you should. Uh, because there's stuff like post episodes. Yep. And blooper reels. Yep. And ad-free episodes. And Miranda soaps. And Miranda soaps. And Miranda post
0: episodes. Yep. So so much extra stuff. You
1: should hundred percent just check it out. And you should check out the newsletter and you should check out the merch page and you should check out the ducks. You get free ducks.
0: Yep, we did get a few orders in the last week.
1: I'm sure we've seen them. We always do. Yep. Paige is in charge of, of keeping track of that.
2: And Paige yep. does a great job. Everyone, uh give your best to Paige. They're really going through it right now. They are. And they're still like getting stuff out for us.
0: Yeah, so. they are. I'm really amazed they're still editing for us Page and everything. Is the best. I understand that it keeps the sanity, it's the like consistency though, and the nice lightness to it. But really appreciate work all the work they're doing because they are really having a hard time right now in life. Life is not treating them fairly. It's not fair. It's not fair. Life no fair. It's not fair. I'm very sorry.
1: Okay. So that being said, we're gonna post episode now. We hope you have a great and healthy week and we'll catch you all next week.
2: Keep your speed up.
1: Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hard Landings
2: Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandingspod. Subscribe and leave a five star review on the platform you are using to listen.
0: If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at Hardlandingspodcast.com where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was
2: researched and written by Nick and Christy and edited by the lovely page. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us, plus Leo.
0: And our logo is by Naomi. Thanks
2: for listening. Catch you next
0: time.